Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, today we're going to be speaking with Callie Werner, and she's an expert in many things, but particularly in perfectionism and obsessive compulsive disorder and the drive that you have if you're an athlete as well, the perfectionism that often comes with that. Abs, can you relate to any of her expertise? Absolutely not. But wait, Maggie, well, you have a piece of hair that's kind of out of place. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Okay, I confess. I'm a perfectionist and an OCD sister, so I got it all, baby. Yes. We're so excited to welcome Callie. She's a licensed clinical social worker and current PhD student and the founder of Athlete Rising. Callie received her bachelor's degree from Rice University, where she competed as a division one distance runner, winning nine conference titles. Wow. And honorable mention, all American in the 10K. Her most recent athletic success was competing in the 2020 U.S. Olympic trials in the marathon. While Callie was an undergraduate at Rice, she was diagnosed with OCD. She knew that she had struggled with aspects of OCD since childhood, but the diagnosis and subsequent treatment changed her life and introduced her to her current passion for the field of mental health. Kelly not only has a private practice, but she does research on OCD and perfectionism in athletes. She also uses her voice to provide resources and hope to other folks facing OCD, and we're so delighted to have her here today with us. I'm happy to be here. I can't wait. Welcome. Welcome. We just wanted to get a sense about your history with anxiety, OCD, when you first noticed symptoms. Yeah, happy to dive in. And my symptoms, as you mentioned, started around the age of four from my parents here that I was going around the house, tapping my nose and saying, sorry, God, sorry, God, sorry, God. Um, which is known as the OCD subtype scrupulosity. I felt like if I didn't tap my nose, I could have possibly said a lie at some point throughout the day. um, And my nose was going to grow like Pinocchio's. And so the initial kind of signs and symptoms, there was a lot of catching bugs in our house and having to let them out because I would feel guilty if they died in the house, not because I really cared, but because I feared that God would be mad if I didn't do that. And so um, those symptoms kind of progressed over time. And in third or fourth grade, I remember struggling with sexual intrusive thoughts and, and people kind of always are shocked to hear that. They, they think, well, how could you be a third grader and struggle with those if you didn't even know what it was? And I, it's true. I didn't know what sex was. I just felt like, Ooh, that's a bad word that I shouldn't say due to kind of being raised in just a conservative Christian household. And so I remember like scooting up in my chair one day and there was a line of desks and I had a student sitting in front of me and I had this intrusive thought, what if I touched that student inappropriately when I scooted up in my chair? And so lots of confessing, lots of reassurance seeking. um, And my parents kind of just labeled it as Kelly, you were so quirky. And then when we got to a point where I was 
becoming a good distance runner in high school, the symptoms obviously increased with stress. And so we would see them kind of wax and wane if we moved houses or if I was transitioning from middle school to high school, but um, they really kind of got a little bit more out of hand when I was competing and trying to win state cross country championships, getting recruited by colleges to compete in college. All of those stressors kind of just put more pressure on me. Um, so I did a lot of like tapping rituals, doing behaviors just right. The scrupulosity was still there. I hated the number six and would try to avoid it when I had a race coming up. So I would do things in fours because that felt like a safe number. And it got to a point where my coach was tying my own shoes for me for the starting line because I couldn't get to the line on time if he didn't. But uh, they were kind of willing to do whatever it took because I was a good athlete. And so lo and behold, I, I made it through high school, kind of was able to get through all these things and go to a good school and competed in college. But I was injured my first year at Rice. And, and so I feel like that injury kind of dipped my OCD symptoms for a while. So I wasn't competing. So the stress was off. And so they were hidden. But then when I started competing and getting success in college, they came back with a vengeance. And I think that's because, you know, you have the stress of being a scholarship athlete. If you don't perform, there's this risk of, well, what am I going to be able to keep my scholarship, even though I had the nicest coach and that really wasn't a concern, that stress was still there. And so the symptoms completely exasperated sexual intrusive thoughts, harm intrusive thoughts to self and others to a point where I was like terrified to go into a, a bathroom at school um, because I thought, okay, if I'm alone by myself, I'm going to harm myself. Or if someone else is in the bathroom with me, I'm going to harm them. And so it was really this like tug of war in my brain of, I don't want to be alone because that's terrifying, but I don't want to be with other people because that's terrifying. And so I just felt super stuck and I got home that Christmas break and my parents saw that this was debilitating me and making it difficult for me to kind of take steps forward. They would have a conversation with me. I wasn't really retaining anything because I was just ruminating so much. And so Finally, I got the appropriate level of care, that evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure response prevention, and it was life-changing. Um, I had wished that I had gotten it so much earlier because there were lots of struggles on and off throughout my life, and um, that's when I made a career change and decided I want to do this for a living, and here I am today. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, before I ask you an another question, I just want to say that I've got a lump in my throat just now, and I'm a little bit emotional. Because when you were describing how you were feeling in college, how you didn't want to be left alone in a bathroom because of your thoughts, I just wanted to point out to people who may not have suffered from obsessive thinking or compulsions that it's not what you see in the movies. It's debilitating. I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling very emotional because I'm remembering in college my own compulsions, my own need to tap and not be able to move forward with anything until I tapped a certain amount, my own feeling that if I couldn't wash off something that I thought was contaminating me, that I thought I literally might die. And the amount of distress that someone who suffers from OCD feels, it just was palpable the way you described it. And I just wanted to share that with our listeners. For those of you who maybe don't know the experience of OCD, it, it just feels like you're your brain has you trapped and will let you go. Yeah. I, yeah. So true. I, I think that those that don't experience OCD will say something like, well, you know, other people touch that doorknob and they don't die. So why, why can't you accept that? And I always try to explain it as, well, there's this fight or flight response that goes off without you being able to control it. Right. And so even though there's that rational part of the brain saying, you're not going to die, this is silly. Why would you think that? 
the irrational part is winning because when you are at that place where your anxiety is a 10 out of a 10 panic attack, there's no bringing the insight back. And so I think it's hard for people that aren't experiencing this to understand, but I mean, a lot of people have experienced a panic attack, not everybody, but um, just this level of intense fear. And so asking them to kind of go to that place of, okay, well, what did that feel like? Were you able to order something off of a menu when you were feeling that intense anxiety? And the answer is usually no. Okay, well, imagine someone in this life or death situation of tug of war in their brain. They're, they're not able to rationally let those thoughts go because their fight or flight response is telling them this is true. The compulsions may seem very strange to people, but it... In a certain way, it's the only chance at relief that an OCD sufferer gets. And of course, the treatment involves exposure therapy and and not allowing those compulsions to take over. But the reason for the compulsions is because that seems to be the only thing that will soothe that panic. So it's why people can't just quit tapping the wall or why they can't quit washing their hands or can't quit counting or whatever compulsion that person is doing. So I just appreciated you being so honest and sharing that with our audience. Many people other than elite athletes are perfectionists. Me, for example, I am not an elite athlete, never have been, but certainly I would put myself up against any other perfectionist out there uh, in terms of how that plays out in my anxiety struggles. Can, Can you talk a little bit about perfectionism, how you define it, how you see it? in both anxiety sufferers and in athletes and non-athletes? Most definitely. Yeah, just like OCD, perfectionism can become debilitating. Uh, I hear people say, well, you know, I can't leave the house unless I put everything away in the dishwasher. Like if I go for a walk around the block and I know that there's things in the sink, it will not allow me to enjoy that walk. And I think that is an example of a perfectionistic behavior. What is not an example of a perfectionistic behavior is when someone says, oh, I'm so OCD because I have to keep everything in line, right? That's not, that's not perfectionism or OCD. That's just type A personality. And, and there's a lot of people that function better when they have things arranged in a good fashion or orderly and like to be organized like myself. Um, I don't struggle as much with the perfectionistic tendencies as I do the OCD, but I do like to have a generally clean office um, and function better that way. But I'm also okay if I have a mess every once in a while and I can still go on about my day. And so I think the difference between OCD and perfectionism, if that might help the audience a little more too, is someone with OCD might have their refrigerator all lined up perfectly um, because they feel like if a can is out of place, their loved one might die or they're going to fail an exam or the weather's going to get really bad and they'll get in a car accident. But that fear is coming from them not engaging in an action. Whereas someone with perfectionism usually feels more like, well, it has to be this way. Like, why wouldn't we have it in this, this order? And there's not always this fear that something terrible will happen if they don't do it this way, they just function better that way. Um, so they can actually look pretty similar and be difficult to differentiate if we don't know the, the underlying root cause. And OCD has this fear that I have to do this or else, whereas perfectionism is, well, we should all do it this way. And so there needs to be a little bit more insight before you engage in exposure therapy with perfectionism. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Are, per, are people with perfectionism 
more likely to also have OCD? Yeah, they, they are comorbid. We know with OCD, the majority of the time someone has a comorbid diagnosis. And I would say just from my observations, a comorbid anxiety diagnosis. So perfectionism, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety, specific phobia. Um, so yeah, they, they do go pretty hand in hand, but it's not like a requirement. You don't have to have OCD and perfectionism or vice versa. Right. When is perfectionism like a diagnosis? Do you know what I mean? Like what brings it to that level? Yeah, I think kind of like similar with OCD, they say it has to be taking more than an hour out of your day. Hmm. I have a question about, about your athleticism and anxiety in the sense that I know that when I was suffering from panic attacks, I saw a very respected psychiatrist who told me that I should be doing 30 minutes of intense cardio every single day. And I said to him, my heart rate's already at 200. I don't know how much more I can rev up. And so we've often told other anxiety sisters that, you know, when you're experiencing acute symptoms, revving up the engines may not be the best way to go because your body can't tell the difference between getting ready to, let's say, run a marathon and fight or flight when you're trigger happy. And so I was thinking about, you know, you're a runner. And so of course you have to really summon up adrenaline very fiercely and quickly. How do you walk that line? I love that question. It's such a good one. Uh, so there's a type of exposure called interoceptives and that's when someone is struggling with panic attacks. And so we might have them slowly start to do something like breathing through a straw and teaching their brain, Hey, you're not about to die or kind of like spinning around in a chair and and feeling a little bit dizzy, but to throw someone in and say, Hey, 30 minutes of intense exercise every day. doesn't seem like that person was doing an ERP approach, but then on top of that, something that I can really relate to with that being very triggering. If I wasn't a distance runner, um, we know that, you know, endorphins get released after running. And so it can actually make you feel a little bit better. If you're really amped up or angry and you go for a run, you might feel a little bit more calm afterwards. I actually had the opposite happen where I felt like I have to run in order to have a good day because I was so used to getting that endorphin release um, and having all this built up energy if I didn't. And so my exposure therapy consisted of, Hey, on an off day, take an off day and do something else that's engaging your brain that isn't running cardio. And I think we're looking more at like the panic happening. If you have a panic disorder or, um, something like that, that can totally induce symptoms, right? People with panic disorder might try to avoid getting their heart rate up. And so it's not helpful to say, Hey, go get your heart rate up the first day of treatment. But we do want to teach them that there's this balance between if your heart rate does get up, you're, you're okay. You're, you're not dying. Like the brain is sending that signal that you are, but we don't want to jump all in. We need to ease in kind of like that hierarchy approach. Mm, interesting. I have a, can I have a follow-up question really quick? Yeah. So as an OCD sufferer myself, I'm particularly attuned to the fact that OCD is a disease of doubt, right? It's fundamentally about uncertainty. It's your brain saying to you, what if, here's some rules to prevent the what if from happening and you need to follow these rules. And I was just wondering if, that doubt that often comes with OCD suffering affected your ability to prepare for a race because you have to really believe in yourself in athletics. I mean, or in any competition, you have to feel that, that there is no doubt that you can do this and you can do it really fast and well. And I was just wondering if those wires ever crossed for you. 
Golly, these are like the best questions giving me goosebumps. <laughs> I really love them. But I, yeah, totally, right? The confidence is very impacted by OCD symptoms. And I would say even just, just now in my therapy journey, I'm at a place where, uh, because I still see a provider right now at about once a month. And if my symptoms increase, I'm definitely going to go back and get some more touch-up sessions a little bit more frequently. But I am just now in this place where I'm able to say I'm confident in myself. And that took a really long time to get to. But when I was at my worst and I was competing, I hated running. Like it took the love completely away because I felt like a prisoner to it. I didn't know how each race was going to go. I didn't know if the gun was going to go off and my, my feet were going to even move because of this panic and irrational fear that I was experiencing. I remember before races, like how triggering it was for me to go to the bathroom, but your, your nerves are so intense that you constantly have to go to the bathroom. And every time I went, it was such a trigger because I feared that what if I harmed someone when I was in there and I didn't want to race with that fear kind of pulling me back, right. Completely keeping me out of the present moment. So I really started to resent my sport. Uh, and I do think that that was because of this lack of confidence, um, and, and inability to trust that these really were OCD thoughts. And so it took a long time and I'm still learning and still getting to that ultimate place that I want to be where I can trust. Yeah, I recognize this. This is just another one of those OCD thoughts and I'm not going to give it the extra attention that it wants, but getting better. <laughs> That's interesting because I actually had a similar question to that about how you talk about um, how you really sort of reconnected with your love for sport once you got your symptoms more under control. I think a lot of times people think that something like OCD is the thing that makes you really good at something, you know, or perfectionism makes you really good at something, but, you know, it's really something that drains it really drains us. It's like, it's like sort of thought of as a superpower, but it's really very draining in a lot of ways. And so. Absolutely. Yeah. I was told that too, grow, growing up or when my sport, when I got better at it, I was told, well, it must be because of some of your OCD symptoms. Like some people knew that if I was going for a run and I ran 3.5 miles, I'd have to round up to four um, because three was a multiple of six, right? And so they'd say, oh, well, you're getting that extra mileage and that must be why you're such a good runner. And so I owned that because I didn't know anything about my OCD yet. And I was like, maybe they're right. Maybe these behaviors are what I should be engaging in, which was of course the wrong message, right? Like we know that these behaviors, just like you said, completely lead to a level of burnout and debilitation. And once OCD gets to that point, it does start negatively impacting your sport or whatever it is that you love. And so if you can stay in this line where you're in control over your OCD, it doesn't mean that I'm never going to have another compulsion again, but I know that I'm in the driver's seat with it and that there's freedom there. And, and I can love my sport, but if my OCD is in control of me and I'm not able to make the decisions for myself, then that's when the resentment starts to build up. So let's talk some treatment modalities. Cause I know that there's a few that have really helped you and that you use a lot with your clients. I know that ACT acceptance and commitment therapy is something that you practice and it would be great if you shared that with our listeners. And also you you do CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, exposure therapy. I mean, there's some modalities that you know a lot about. I wonder if you could share the sort of the, an introduction to those, if you would. Especially for, there's a lot of people who haven't heard of the sort of ERP and all, all of those different types of treatments. So they don't know the lingo. Sure. <laughs> I'll get to the nitty gritty then with 
The specific form of treatment that we know is the, the main standard treatment that you should be receiving if you're struggling with OCD, uh, a form of cognitive behavioral therapy known as exposure with response prevention. So I'll refer to that as ERP going forward and cognitive behavioral therapy as CBT. And when someone goes to a therapist that says, I do CBT, you should be asking them, uh, okay, do you do CBT with ERP? Because CBT alone is not proven effective for OCD. And so um, acceptance and commitment therapy act is also a really good approach to include with CBT and ERP. But again, that alone is not going to be enough to give someone the results that they're looking for. And so I would say most good ERP providers should have some ACT skills as well. And, and when we look at ACT, we're really focusing on values. And so um, kind of reminding yourself, okay, I'm willing to do this hard work and these exposures that are really terrifying because I value my life or because I value running that I know that I once loved that OCD took away from me. And so I'm going to hold some of these really scary things lightly and not so intensely anymore and, and try to face these fears and live in my values. This is a really act-based uh, statement here, but we should never let OCD make a decision for us. And so when I was really kind of coming to the idea of, I think I want to be an OCD clinician, like that changed my life. I was super passionate about it. I definitely had a lot of people say, Kelly, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Won't that re-trigger you and make it more difficult for you to stay on this healthy journey that you're on? And there was that doubt and there was that fear, but um, because my own provider had some good act skills, they kind of asked me, okay, but would you be making that decision out of fear or, um, because like, you feel like that's actually right for you. And it was totally out of fear that I would choose not to do that. So mm. it, it helped me kind of fully engage and say, you know what, when it comes, I have the skills to try to challenge those triggers. And I'm going to trust that I have those skills and, and saying trust is a really scary thing for people with OCD, but even that in itself was an exposure that I had to lean into. So then getting to cognitive behavioral therapy, that alone is, is more helpful for like generalized anxiety disorder, or even someone with some social anxiety can, can benefit from some CBT alone, but it's, it's really laying out the thoughts that are rational and the thoughts that are irrational. So I might say, um, oh my gosh, I failed this exam and now I'm never going to get the job that I wanted. And that would be catastrophic thinking. So we kind of label these thoughts as cognitive distortions, and then we work out why it's a cognitive distortion. Okay, well, I jumped from, I failed this one exam, and now I'm not going to get a job, or I'm going to live under a bridge or not make any money. And so we're trying to put evidence for and evidence against this thought. And if it truly is a cognitive distortion, you'll have way more evidence against that thought. But we can see how CBT alone is actually really unhelpful for an OCD thought because it would just be giving yourself reassurance. So for example, if I used a CBT alone approach for, um, okay, I touched this doorknob and now I'm worried that I'm going to have some kind of disease or illness. Well, I might be going online and researching, can I get a disease or illness from touching a doorknob, right? And I'm going to find those few articles that reinforce that fear and it's just going to send me in a spiral. And so that's where ERP comes in where, when we're really leaning into the uncertainty piece of, okay, I'm not supposed to know with certainty what was on this doorknob and I can't. And so if I keep trying to solve it, I'm just going to be stuck 
in this repetitive cycle. And so I'm going to lean into that and try to move forward with my life and engage in my values and act. Um, and the more that I engage in values and, and quit trying to solve this specific compulsion, the more freedom that I get, the more that I can see, I can tolerate it. And that anxiety goes on down on its own without a compulsion. That's such a good way to describe it. I I feel like you just described these things so well. Thank you very, very much. So I just want to ask a follow-up question. When you were in the beginning of your treatment, like what would exposure and what would an ERP look like for you? Yeah. So there were a lot that I had to work my way up towards, but I remember one of the early on ones because of my sexual intrusive thoughts, I was terrified to wear a skirt. And so like wearing a skirt was one of my exposures that I had to do. And then going back to racing, I was, I was having a really hard time not tying my shoes four times, like tying them, untying them four different times. And so I had to do a a shoe tie three times. And, And so it was really leaning into that because that three was a multiple of six for me. So little at a time I was able to do some of those things. And then before I knew it, I was able to just tie them once and, and go for a race. And that, I always call that a bittersweet exposure, right? Because it was one time and it was the first time I did it one time and it was really triggering, but also, wow, kind of a look how far I've come moment. And so that's, that's where the bittersweetness comes in. Like, wow, what a cool, cool way to say I've come such a long way to be able to do that. Wow. Can I just add in that exposure therapy is excruciating? <laughs> Just want to say that right off the bat. I mean, we just need to be honest with everybody that, you know, I've done it. You've done it. It's, it's rough. I mean, when we come to the other side, we can talk about it. But when you started describing wearing the skirt and I started to think about the first time that I had to do certain things with contamination and my heart started to beat faster thinking about, I'm not, my heart didn't beat faster thinking about the contamination. It beat faster thinking about the exposure therapy (laughs) did to get to the point where now I don't have to Lysol everyone and everything around me. Right. And and that's kind of a reason, right? Why why ACT is so important because we have to come up with a specific list of motivators because of what you said, exposure therapy is really hard. And if you don't have the idea of what motivates you for treatment, like if I didn't have in mind hope, like hope was a big motivator for me that hope that I would one day get better and not be in a prison cell in my own brain. And so if I didn't have that, if I didn't think that I could get better, why in the world would I engage in these things that were excruciating? And so having that list of motivators for, you know, if it's, whether it's being able to hug your kid again, or being able to leave the house or being able to use a public restroom because you know that you need that freedom. I wrote it down and I had it all around me so that I could remember the why it was right in front of me. We encourage people when we talk about things like fear ladders and certain things to help people try to do some of their own exposure. We say, write down your why and keep it with you everywhere you go and keep saying it to yourself because that will be what will get you through. Totally. Well said. Yeah. Wow. So if, if people are seeing some of these things happen to themselves or their child even. How do people assess what's going on and get the right kind of help and all of that? So before I started private practice, I was the family therapist for McLean OCD Institute in Houston. And so I got to work with lots of families and I had a lot of compassion for families. Unless a family member went to school to be an ERP provider, 
they aren't going to respond in the right way because you see your loved one suffering and you want to jump in and make them feel better in that moment. Um, but we know now that jumping in and rescuing your loved one is going to reinforce that OCD most likely, give them the reassurance that they need, but it's only temporary. And so I, I think family members also need the support because I always say ERP isn't just for the one suffering, it, it's really for the whole family because it is distressing for a loved one to see the person struggling or suffering in distress themselves and for them to have to kind of ride that wave with them is, is super difficult. And so I, I really think the whole family does need support along the way. And whether that's um, joining the loved one for a session or two to just get some general education or, or working in family therapy with a provider that has some OCD background themselves. But just to kind of send the message out to family members now, of course you would engage in accommodating behaviors at first, right? Like it's all you know. And I think so many families had, in my experience, held so much guilt and felt like this is all my fault because mm -hmm. they enabled for so long. But the reality is there is this genetic component um, that contributes as well. So they didn't cause the OCD and you're not alone in, in accommodating. Um, you weren't expected to be an ERP provider for your profession, but the fact that um, you're getting the help and support now means all the world to your loved one, even if in the moment they're super frustrated for you not giving into a compulsion. But I also would like to say it's, it's not helpful for family members to go the other route. Whereas as soon as they know what a compulsion is, what reassurance is to rip all of that away at once without any guidance can also debilitate their loved one. Their anxiety will flood and it can make them take more steps back in treatment. So that's why having the appropriate support from a clinician to help them work up those steps a little bit at a time and take away accommodations a little bit at a time is super important. Right. That's so interesting. I, I also think, you know, just as a parent myself, um, when one of my children was exhibiting some OCD behavior at a very young age, I'm a social worker, I'm immersed in all of this. And it took me a long time to recognize what it was because it was a lot of reassurance seeking. And it was a lot of this whole idea of emotional contamination. And it took me a really long time. I had to learn a lot more specifically about OCD. Like your parents said, I thought this was my child being quirky. Right. Well, and, and I will say even an OCD provider myself, like the reason I have to see a therapist is because when you're the one struggling with it, or when your child is the one struggling with it, even if you have an incredible background, because you've had a loved one struggle with OCD before, and you knew what accommodations were, when you're the one going through it, it's too close to home. And the insight is so hard to see. And so you really do need that outside resource to say, hey, this is what this is, and really connect those dots for you. And so even though I have my own knowledge of how OCD works and the treatment and, and all of those things, I still need accountability from my own therapist, because when I'm the one going through it, it's really hard to make those connections. Tell us about Anxious Annie. Anxious Annie is a book that I wrote. It was right when I um, was about to start my PhD program. And it had kind of always been on my bucket list to write a children's book. And I thought to myself, if I don't do this now, it's not going to happen for the next four years after this program starts. And so that really put a little bit of fire under my belt. So it's about a, a distance runner and she's on her journey and 
just kind of like I was talking about the anxiety started to take away from her love for the sport because she was so worried that she was going to let others down if she didn't compete or win the race. And so it just talked about finding a new way to set goals and not making these goals unattainable or perfectionistic, but making these goals because this is something that this runner deserves to enjoy Annie and that the people that love her are going to love her whether she wins or loses. And I'll kind of leave it to those that want to read it to see how, (laughs) how, what age group is a book for? It's a, it's for young kiddos. And so it's like 30 pages, a couple sentences per page, but (laughs) it's so funny. Some of my friends that have had an exam coming up, they, they will text me and say, I just read anxious Annie because I needed a big motivator. What kinds of things do you do to soothe your anxiety in any given day? I love doing calligraphy. And so that has been really helpful for me if I'm stuck in a rumination route uh, to just kind of bring myself to the present moment. I taught myself calligraphy over time. And so when I was really struggling, I uh, would come up with some favorite quotes and would play with making different signs and engage in one of those quotes. And so that's a big piece for me. Another one, I have two dogs that I love very dearly. And so when it's one of those days where I'm doing my own exposure of, okay, I'm I'm not going to relieve my anxiety with a run. I'll take my dogs to the dog park and watch them run. And so we go pretty much every day, but those days we might spend a little bit of extra time doing that. And then big karaoke fan. So (laughs) it's a great anxiety soother. Totally. Because it uses your diaphragm and it engages those breathing behaviors that flip the switch from that sympathetic to parasympathetic response. So, you know, it's for all kinds of sciencey reasons, singing is great. Yes, especially, well, I would say it might not be a soother for someone with social anxiety, but that could be a good exposure for someone with social anxiety. Yes, I was thinking about that too. Well, my gosh, you, you really gave us so many specific ideas and, and such a great insight I really appreciate how honest and open and insightful you were with us. Well, I love what the two of you are doing. And that's a big reason why I wanted to be on here today. I know so many people look to you because you are incredible advocates. And so I'm glad we could team up on this one and hear all of our insights. Yes. Yes, we are too. We're really grateful. Let's talk about our weekend with the Anxiety Sisters abs. Can you tell our Anxiety Sisters? about it? Yes, we are having a retreat on December 1st, and it will go through the 4th, which is a Sunday. And it's going to be a really great time to dig deeper into your issues with anxiety and learn how to manage them, but also other things too. I mean, our retreats are not only anxiety. We do so many different activities and there's so much fun and so much laughter and so much connection. So it's really our favorite thing to do is to get together in these retreats. We've missed it so much in the pandemic. So we hope that you will join us in Connecticut December 1st. If you are interested, you're going to have to move a little quick because we're starting to fill up now. So check out our website for more information or PM us or email us, however you want to get in touch. But on our homepage on our website is there's a packet of information that will give you all the details. A lot of anxiety sisters will say, well, like, here's all these things that make me anxious, you know, being with people and traveling. And we make this a really safe space and we make it a really fun space. And it's not one of those situations where there's something you have to do or you have to share. You know, people can really take this at their own pace and participate in a lot of different ways. 
we're able to be really supportive of you individually. That's why we're keeping it only 14 women so that we can really make it an intimate and safe space. And it's a really good place to learn some new skills and try them out because, you know, we make sure that everyone feels comfortable and included. I have to say it's a gentle weekend, even though really it's got a lot of fun things involved, lots of activities. You can be as active or not active as you wish, but it's a very gentle weekend, even with all the activities. So so come with us. We would love to meet you. You can join our free community on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. You can also email us at absandmags at anxietysisters.com or direct message us on any social media channel and we will respond. It might take a couple of days, but we promise we will definitely respond and get back to you. And here's the thing. If you enjoy our podcast, if you like the spin cycle, please, please, please leave us a review. Because in podcast land, the only way that we get to reach more people is if people leave us a review. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, Anxiety Sisters don't go it alone. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.